Please join me in a prayer. Father God, thank you for the opportunity that we live in and the times that we live in. I believe that you plant us where you want us to live and you know the seasons that we live in and therefore you equip us at every stage and in every age to serve you well. And we pray that you will allow us to grow in our faith, to rise to the challenges of our times, and also to think outside of ourselves in order to bless other people around us. We continue to pray for our nation, that uh, you will bless our leaders with wisdom, with courage to make wise decisions. We pray for a stop to this coronavirus. We pray for a solution, whether that is something miraculous you do or whether it comes from medical technology. We pray for all of those who are working on um, a vaccine and we ask that you'd allow them to have breakthroughs that work and that are good for all. We also ask that you'd bless our neighbors around us. In this time, make us individually and as a church a blessing to other people. Throughout all the towns that we represent and especially closer to uh, where our church is located here in Pembroke and on the Marshfield border. We pray that during this time, you will allow us to radiate the love of Christ in practical ways that make a difference. And now guide us as we look into your word again. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I dive into today's message, I'd like to talk to you for just a moment about this year's Global Leadership Summit. We have not said much about it up until this point because a lot of decisions have been changing based on the coronavirus shutdown that the whole country is going through. I want you to know that the Global Leadership Summit, popularly called the GLS, is happening this year on August 6th and 7th. We were given some options about what kind of summit experience we would have this year. And because we could not be sure of what it would be like if we had a face-to-face -face encounter, we have chosen to have an all-online GLS experience this year. So it will be on, on August 6th and 7th, which is a Thursday and Friday. We would love you to take part in it. Anybody who is a part of the North River Church family uh, gets a $99 price. What that gets you is uh, admission to view all of the elements of the two-day leadership summit, on those two days, and then a one-week pass where you can go back and look at either sessions you want to watch again or sessions that you missed. So you are more in control than ever before. So the price is $99. The link is live on our website. In order to register, you need to go to northriverchurch.org forward slash GLS2020. And you don't need a passcode this year. All of that will be self-populating if you log in as uh, a member of North River. And we'd love to have as many people attend. I actually think more people should attend this year than ever before because you're in control of the GLS. Our message today is called Convictions to Live By. Several years ago, I met with a financial planner. And after some introductory conversation, he said, before I go any further with you, I want you to do one thing for me. And then he held out a piece of paper with a stick figure that outlined the form of a man. And in the center of that man's frame was an empty box. 
And the financial planner said, I can't go any further with you until you tell me what's in your box. Now, some people put different things inside of that box. Some people put financial security in that box. Others put their family. Everyone puts something in that central box or his or her life. That box represents whatever the dominant or most central purpose is in your life. In essence, that financial planner wanted to know about my goals, my priorities, and my convictions. And the more he knew about what was central to my life and what would go in that box, the more he would be able to help me plan for the future. Okay, this isn't a financial planning session, and I am definitely not a financial planner. But this morning, in part two of our recalculating series, we're going to look at a series of statements that the Apostle Paul wrote that reveal the convictions of his heart. In other words, what was in Paul's box. So welcome back to North River Church. I am so glad that you're here today. In our current recalculating series, we are learning about the Apostle Paul's willingness to recalculate the priorities and methods of his ministry. We are doing this so that we can also apply these same principles to our lives as we recalculate our pathway forward given all of the changes that have fallen upon us during this shutdown period. Since the middle of March, you and I have actually been recalculating the daily patterns of our lives. And we're not through because you and I are not in control of when and how this all unfolds as we go forward. So here's the key idea for today. Our stated convictions declare our priorities and prepare us to carry out the mission in turbulent times. We're going to talk about convictions to live by, and there are four of them that Paul outlines here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 30. The first is that the mission comes first. He writes in verses 15 and 16, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The key statement in this paragraph shows up in verse 16. Here Paul tells us his first conviction to live by. I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now just think about that statement for a moment. Paul is in house arrest in Rome. He is not free to go. He is a guest of the Roman trial court because he appealed his case. Instead of continuing to be held in prison back in Caesarea, the political seat of the Roman government in Judea, Paul was sent to Rome because of that appeal. In effect, he said, I appeal my case to Caesar. And because he was a Roman citizen, those who were in Israel could no longer hold him. They had to send him to Rome. This gives us a brief glimpse into the Roman court system. Paul had been held in Caesarea on a disturbing the peace charge, which was because Paul had taught about the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem, and there were a number of people who were very upset about that idea. He had already been held for about two years in Caesarea, allowing him to testify to his faith before the Roman provincial leaders in Israel, and now he would be held for another two years in house arrest, waiting for his trial to come up. Yet Paul sets all of this aside in saying, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now what was Paul doing here? First he was recognizing that God works through human events according to his purposes. And second, he was constantly looking for what we call the upper story 
of God's greater redemptive plan. You and I are always operating in the smaller, lower story about our lives, but Paul was wondering how his lower story connects with God's greater redemptive plan through the ages. How would Paul defend the gospel? First, he was allowed to have a teaching ministry to those who came to visit him. So some of his young disciples and protégés would visit, and they would carry the letters that Paul wrote. He had earlier written his letter to the church in Rome, so they were expecting him at some point. And he was building up and encouraging the people in the church of Rome as he had opportunity to be exposed to them. Second, he began his extended letter writing ministry to the churches. Now this this letter to the Philippian church wasn't the first letter he wrote. Most of the churches that he was writing to, he had already started as a church planter or at least visited and spent some time there as a traveling teacher. The Christians were mostly new in their faith and they needed advice and instruction within that city of Philippi. Paul probably never knew that this would be his wisest, most enduring legacy, that of writing letters. Third, his presence was impacting the Roman guards, and through the Roman guards, he hoped that word of his message and his gospel was getting all the way into the household of Caesar. In all of this, we see that for Paul, the mission came first. If the mission demanded that he stay in house arrest, so be it. Paul realized that from his first encounter with Jesus, he had been saved to serve. In other words, God had brought him into this faith for a purpose. In verse 12 of the same chapter, he wrote, What has happened to me actually served to advance the gospel. And he would willingly give up every freedom to see other people find new life in Christ. Here's an example of this in our day. Truett Foster McKeon was the eldest son of Christian hip-hop artist Toby Mack, and he died suddenly in his home in Franklin, Tennessee on October 23, 2019. He was just 21, and the cause of his death was unknown. This was a crushing blow to that family. A few days later, Toby Mack sent out this statement. My wife and I would want the whole world to know this. We don't follow God because we have some sort of under-the-table deal with him, Like, we'll follow you if you bless us. We follow God because we love him. God is the God of the hills and the valleys. And so here, Toby Mack was acknowledging that they follow God in all situations and that God was in control of all things, just as Paul was saying, God has placed me here and God has put me in this place during this time. So the first conviction that Paul expresses is that the mission comes first. Here's the second conviction. We refuse to allow rivalries to get in the way. Verse 15, if we take that a little bit farther, all the way through verse 18, reads this way. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, in other words, because Christ is preached, Paul says, I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. In verse 15, Paul recognizes that his imprisonment has become controversial. 
There's one group of friends who stand by him and support him, and then there's another group of Christians who seem to view Paul as a scandalous leader. They have begun using Paul's house arrest as a reason to oppose the teaching and ministry of Paul and then to promote their own ministry efforts in contrast. It is interesting that Paul doesn't name names here. Perhaps he assumes that this controversy is well known by his original audience, his original readers of the letter. He marvels that these people think that they can make things worse for him when he's already in chains. What is most remarkable is Paul's response in verse 18. Years years earlier, Paul had been accused of disturbing the peace in Jerusalem. And now he says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. What Paul was doing here was refusing to allow this rivalry to distract him. He'd already seen all kinds of people that got upset with him or didn't like his ministry. And so he doesn't call upon his authority as an apostle. He doesn't excommunicate them. He doesn't shame them for false doctrine because he doesn't detect that going on here. Instead, he simply dismisses the controversy and gets to the point where they share his main goal. And he says the important thing is that in every way, Christ is preached. I, recently, I was recently in a group where one person expressed shock over this kind of envy or rivalry as we were reading through Philippians chapter 1. Let me say this, veteran Christians should not be shocked that there is rivalry between leaders. You have opinions and I have opinions about whose style or whose personality we may identify with. Perhaps some of these people in the first century thought that Paul was just a big-mouthed troublemaker. Perhaps they disagreed with the new methods that Paul was beginning to embrace. He would no longer go from city to city and from home to home. His, his letter-writing campaign would take over and would become dominant in his ministry. Several years ago, I heard a pastor take a shot at North River because back then we often used drama sketches to illustrate uh, some specific topic or a part of what that Sunday's message would be about. Some of those dramas were hilarious, and some used humor to capture your attention, while others were very hard-hitting, revealing how life can hit us where it hurts. But in all cases, we were using drama to illustrate points, not to entertain people. So I heard this pastor taking a shot at us in his radio program, and I called him, and I want you to know I'm deliberately leaving his name out of this because it's not important. And when I called him, I asked, hey, what gives? When we get together, you are supportive and encouraging, and then I listen to your radio program, and you're taking shots at us. To his credit, he apologized on the spot. He said that that particular part of that message was taped years earlier before he'd really gotten to know me, and he felt badly about that. He had no idea that 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 tape had been used in the broadcast that week. And then he said, let's do this. I will refuse to believe anything negative about you unless we first talk face-to-face. And I'm going to ask the same thing that you will do for me. You know, to this day when I see him, we both smile with appreciation and genuine affection. Why? He was doing what the Apostle Paul did here. He refused to allow any hint of rivalry or different strategies to continue to get in the way that we were both 
continuing to pursue a clear gospel ministry. And I would dare call him my friend today. So the first conviction to live by is that the mission comes first. The second is those who are on mission refuse to allow rivalries to get in the way. Here's the third conviction from Paul. My life belongs to Jesus. I hope you can say that too, that your life belongs to Jesus. We carry on and we pick this up near the end of verse 18. Paul says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that in no way I will be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, verse 21 is the summary of this paragraph. If you can put that back for just a second, please. That statement said, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. These are some of the most famous words that the Apostle Paul ever wrote or said. This is a verse worth committing to memory. Doing this can shape and guide our thinking for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So we need to unpack this statement a bit. From his current position in house arrest, Paul did not know if he would live or die. The Caesars lived in a brutal, cutthroat world of death and betrayal. Rome was known for creating a general sense of peace known as the Pax Romana. But the Pax Romana was only seen as a good thing if you were already in complete compliance with Rome. This kind of peace was achieved by ruthlessly stamping out all forms of opposition. So Paul's appeal to Rome was not necessarily the safest path. He embraced it because he wanted to spread the gospel of Christ in Rome and beyond. But he knew there was great risk involved in this decision. So what was Paul doing here in this paragraph? First, he was stating his third conviction, to live as Christ and to die as gain. If he was spared, he would go on serving Christ in every possible way. If he was executed, he had every confidence of being united with Christ in eternity. This is one of the great benefits of being a Christian. The worst that can happen, the taking of our lives, leads to the best of all outcomes. We get to see Jesus. This is why this is such a great verse to memorize. Sometimes we become afraid of things that actually have no power over us, at least in the long run. Second, Paul was asking for prayer support. So in verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that in no way will I be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. Courage for what? So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. It certainly helped him to write and memorize this motto, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But Paul is now asking them to back him up in prayer because you never know exactly what's going to happen until you're in the moment and Paul wanted to make sure that his courage would not be wavering or lacking if he really had to die for his faith and ultimately a few years later he would can you say with clarity that your life is wrapped up in the life of Jesus can you say that your life and purpose belongs to God if you would like to renew that kind of commitment I'd like you to pray along with me. We're going to put these words up on the screen. 
Lord, I admit that my life has been focused on my own self-oriented goals. This is a confession. I believe that you have put me here for a purpose. And you sent Jesus to redeem my life, to fill my life with grace, and to use everything in my life to glorify and honor you. Today, my new or renewed conviction is to dedicate all that I have and all that I am to serving your purposes in this world. I believe if you pray a prayer like that to the Lord, he will be honored and he will continue to give you courage to follow through with that kind of conviction. He loves it when we renew our dedication to him. And then here's the fourth conviction that Paul wrote about in that chapter. The gospel is worth living for. Verses 27 and 28 sum this up. Whatever happens, as citizens of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, in other words, if he was released, or only hear about you in my absence, meaning he would still be in jail, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together with one accord for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. You and I can never earn the blessings that come our way as Christians, but we can work at living up to the high calling that we are given. When we trust Jesus, we are adopted into the very family of God. The opening promise of John's gospel is that those who receive and believe in Jesus become sons and daughters of God through our relationship with Jesus, his one-of-a-kind son. Evangelist Lee Strobel took that verse and boiled it down to a very simple formula that's easy for us to memorize and to take in. Receive plus believe equals become. And this is such a solid principle that when we receive Jesus as he is revealed in the scriptures and that we believe that he really is God's son who died for us and we transfer our faith and trust to him, we become people who are fundamentally changed from the inside and we are adopted on Jesus' coattails into the very family of God where you and I literally become children of God. Now that's not the whole gospel, but it neatly sums up one of the central promises of God and how you enter into God's family. And then there's a lot more that he wants us to follow through on. The first part of Paul's challenge here is for us to live as citizens of heaven. What a wonderful concept to live knowing that you actually belong somewhere else and that you will one day be reunited with all of those people who belong in that place, that place called heaven. And one day, heaven will come down to earth at the end of time when Christ brings his kingdom in all of its fullness. He renews the earth with its original splendor and God's dwelling place and heaven itself are brought down to earth. Many African-American slaves in the United States survived their mistreatment by leaning on their Christian faith. This is why so many of the old gospel songs focused on the blessings of heaven. Sometimes they called it Beulah Land and other names like that. By the way, one of the point that's made, points that's made in the Color of Compromise documentary is that many of the African slaves who were brought here were already Christians. They were often treated as heathens who had no faith by their captors. But when you look at history, Christianity actually entered Africa long before it entered Europe and well over a thousand years before it ever came here to the Americas. 
They'd been singing gospel songs for a long time. And those gospel songs reveal the power and joy of living as citizens of heaven here and now. The second part of Paul's challenge is then to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. He wasn't saying that we would somehow earn our way up to it, but rather he was challenging us to live with gratitude toward God and gratitude towards Jesus. He was challenging us to live with purpose. You were made for a mission, and you are being shaped by the Holy Spirit for God's purpose. So I want you to say something with me. Please repeat this with me. I was made for a mission. I am shaped for a purpose. Let's say that once again. I was made for a mission. I was shaped for a purpose. And the longer that you walk with Jesus in the central part of your life and your convictions are wrapped around serving Jesus, you will find your mission. You will find your purpose. And you will know that your life has meaning. So here's the central idea again. Our stated convictions declare our priorities and prepare us to carry out our mission in turbulent times, just like the times you and I are living in today. Let me pray for a moment. God, I pray that you will allow the North River family, both here locally and everywhere where people are watching, to be so caught up with Jesus that we would embrace this sense that our lives belong to you and that therefore we were made for a mission and that we are being shaped day in and day out by your word, by your truth, and by your Holy Spirit so that we are ready to fulfill our purpose here on earth. May you lead and guide each and every one of us to know why you've put us here, to know what our spiritual gifts are, how we can be effective in this world, and how we can continue to take up our roles, which are each different from the others, as we fulfill the mission together in serving Jesus and allowing other people to come and know that they too can be adopted as children of God when they put their faith in Jesus. Use us toward that end. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to thank you for being faithful. This particular Sunday is the last Sunday in our fiscal year. Our fiscal year runs from July 1st to June 30th. So this is your last opportunity to give and to make a difference in that process. Thank you for the generosity that you have shown all year long, and especially over the last three and a half months during this COVID shutdown time. And I hope that you have a blessed week as we carry you into that week. Thank you.